Let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of Acts, chapter 15. Yes, we are still in the book of Acts. We're going to go from 36 to 610, so we're making major headway today. Acts chapter 15, verse 36. You know, every once in a while, we need to pause and we need to take a moment to make sure that we know what we're talking about here. Maybe you've had one of those moments in life where you've, you've uh, been reading something or you heard someone speaking. Maybe you're even speaking yourself, and for one reason or the other, you, you're using a term or you're hearing a term that uh, you, you don't fully grasp, Right? Uh, it, you're, you're, you're saying it. You know how it's pronounced. You know how it's spelled. You know how to use it in a sentence. But when it comes down to it, you, if you were tasked to, to, to explain it to someone else, well, to, well tell me what it, what it actually means. You go, oh, well, actually, uh, I don't know. And that's that humiliating moment, right? It's a lot like uh, when uh, my youngest daughter and I bake cookies, uh, you know, Father's Day topic here. Um, often after Sunday mornings, I go home and we make cookies. Uh, it's just something that we do. And I, I know we got to get the flour. I know we got to get the butter. I know that butter has to soften a little bit. And I know there's sugar that goes into it. But is it baking soda or is it baking powder? And I know there's going to be mixing involved. And I know there's probably an egg or two involved. And I know what they're supposed to, to look like when they're done, right? They're not supposed to be black. They're supposed to be kind of this light brown. And they're supposed to have these chocolate chips in them. And they're going to be crispy on the outside, but they're going to be chewy on the inside. And I know that I love them. I'm just going to eat, be tempted to eat way too much. But if I'm going to bake them, I, we've made these so many times. And it's the same recipe over and over again. But inevitably, I have to get that little tin from off the shelf and I have to open it up and I have to pull the recipe card and look at this thing. I'm like, why can't I remember? Why can't I remember how these cookies are made? And words can be like that too. We can go over these things over and over and over again. You can talk about them when you're a little kid in Sunday school and now you're an adult and you go, but what does that actually mean? Disciple, what does that actually mean? And I'm supposed to make these things? How do I, what, what are the ingredients? How, how, do, how do I make these things? Someone mentioned to me the other, the other day that this term disciple, it's kind of a buzzword in the church. We just throw up disciple all the time. Oh, yeah, we're all about making disciples here at the church. And you hear that probably maybe here at Bethany a lot. But then they quickly corrected themselves. And said, well, I guess it can't be a buzzword because Jesus actually used it. But we use it a lot. Yeah, I, I get that. But we, we're going to keep using it as well because it's, it's right and good. But what did Jesus mean when he said, go make disciples? And how are you supposed to go make something that you don't even know what it actually is made up of? My family and I, we've been watching this baking show. This is what you, you do uh, if you were a dad and have girls. You don't watch the army men shows that you grew up on. Now you watch baking shows. And we watch this show with, where there's kids that are in this baking competition. There's all these 11 and 12-year-olds, and they gather them all together in this big room, and they got their workstations. They're just so excited, and they're, you know, they're dumping flour all over the place, and the eggs are flying, and they're sifting, and they're whisking, and they're pouring, and they're decorating, and it all turns out to be like one big disaster after the other. Sometimes the hosts of this show, they ask these kids to make something that the kids are unsure of. And there was this one particular kid that presented her dish. And uh, the judges said, well, this doesn't look at all like what we asked for. We asked you to make a dessert that was disguised as a falafel. This doesn't look like a falafel at all. And the kid's like, 
I have no idea what a falafel is. <laughs> and I think they sent that kid home crying. <laughs> How are you supposed to make disciples if you don't even know what a disciple is? Well, as we walk through our passage today, we're going to see a man named Paul, a disciple of Jesus. We're going to see what he says. We're going to see what he does. And we're going to get a picture of some key characteristics of Christ's disciples. He's going to give us a picture. So let's do this. Acts chapter 15, verse 36 says this. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, who was his partner on that first missionary journey, if you were with us and remember, or if you're familiar with Acts, he says, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. So Paul says, we're going to go, all those people that we shared Jesus with on our last trip, let's go back. Let's go back and see how they are. Let's go strengthen them. Let's encourage them. Now, if Paul was like so many evangelists these days, the traveling ones, or even like so many pastors these days, he would have gotten his message out. He gets up there, and he does what he is called to do, and then move on. You move on. Uh, we do what we're called to do. I blast out the truth, and then I'm going to get on with the next thing. Then I'm going to look for the next hurdle, the next mountain to climb. Uh, one girl on that kid's baking show, the judges are tasting her food, and she says, you eat it, you like it, you move on with your life. And we went, what? Now my youngest daughter says that all the time to us. It's like the hit and run approach, right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna I hit you with the good news. Okay, believe it. Okay, now move on with your life. Get on, get on with it. And Paul could have preached the good news of Jesus like that. He could have uh, said, you know, raise your hand. Who wants to accept Jesus? Okay, let's take your names real quick, put it, add it to my logbook. Or, you know, like the old World War II pilots, we're gonna mark the kills on our plane here. He could have done that, but you know, discipleship, this idea of making disciples doesn't work like that. Not about taking names. There is this Lamb's book of life that we're told about that we're going to see hopefully one day, and our names are written in it if you place your trust in Jesus. God keeps the, the name book. He keeps the list. That's not what we're supposed to be about. It's not about gathering signatures like there's some type of bill that we want to get passed or it's some type of recall election we want to see put to a vote. Disciple-making isn't about name-gathering. Disciple-making is about well, in one sense, it's about disciple caring. It's about disciple caring. Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's how they're going to know. Your, your love for one another, those people who have, like you, recognized their sin, their eyes have been opened, and they come to see, I, I need Jesus because there's no hope for me. Your, your, your care for those people, it's integral to your identity as a disciple yourself, isn't it? Your love for one another. I remember uh, some parents of a student I had years ago when I was a youth pastor, and they came to me, and I said, why, why, don't, you, why, why don't we see you at church? And I said, well, you know, Jared, we want you to know we love Jesus, but just we're just so fed up with the people that go to church. We're just... We're, we're over it. So we don't go. But I want you to know, we love Jesus. Okay. And I said, great. That's exactly how you should do it. <laughs> Friends, it doesn't work like that. And that's because loving Jesus necessarily means that you start to love the things, the very things, the very people that he loves. Jesus loves the people that he gave his life for. 
for these people. And you look around the room and you go, not that one over there. I have some issues with that one. And they're looking right back at you and that one over there, not that one. Paul's desire to return to the people that he told about Jesus, especially considering the fact that in those towns, do you remember what happened to him in those towns? In one place he was stoned, and we said not the drug type, the rock type, to the point where they thought he was dead. He wants to go back there, his desire to go back there and care for those people, it tells us he did care. And he cared deeply for these new members of the family of God. It wasn't enough to just deliver the message and be done with it. I'm going I'm to collect the signature and I am moving on. No, he wanted to make sure that they were cared for. Who's going to care for them? They're out there. I'm the, one that, I'm the one that started this thing. I better go. Barnabas, we need to go. He wants to see how they're doing. He wants to build them up. He loved these people. In Philippians, he he shows some of that love to the Philippian church. He says, God is my witness, how I long for you, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He said it to the Thessalonian church. He said, since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, yes, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. Disciples, they're disciple makers. We've talked about that before. And they're disciple makers when their love for other believers moves them toward each other, towards people. And they do that not just because they enjoy being together, because sometimes we really don't enjoy being together. But they do it because this is what they're called to. They're called to build each other up to help each other grow, to help each other mature in their faith, to fall deeper in love with Jesus, to become more more proficient in in their understanding of this word and how it applies to what's going on in their world, And, and yes, to get better at getting out there and making more disciples. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, Paul tells us the very reason that the Holy Spirit gives us spiritual gifts. You've heard about that, right? Maybe you filled out one of those spiritual gift questionnaires and you try to figure out exactly what your spiritual gift is. And we want to know that so that we know what we have to do and what all those other things that we don't have to do. That, those aren't my spiritual gifts, so I'm not going to do those things, right? No, uh, God gives us these spiritual gifts, and the reason he gives them to us is so that we can show them off to everybody and prove, look how spiritual I am. Well, I can do this. You can't do this, can you? No, it's not that either. He gives us these spiritual gifts for the sake of building up the body. Gifts like teaching and shepherding, the ability to speak the gospel boldly. It's not just for fun. Not for our own egos, it's, as Paul said in in chapter 4, verse 12, it's to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to this unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Disciple makers and disciples, they're marked by this love for each other, for other disciples, and that means that part of disciple making is disciple caring. Are you a disciple? That doesn't mean you go run off into the hills, right? Isolate yourself and become one of these so-called holy people. No, 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 no. Disciples, even the introverted ones, 
They move toward and care for other people. And that's what Paul was doing here. Even though it meant putting himself at risk, right? Look at verse 37. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. You might remember Barnabas. He's the, a leader in the church at Syria Antioch, and he was known for his just encouraging ways, super encouraging, uplifting, kind of, the kind of person you just, everyone wants to be around this person because you, you just feel so much better about yourself when we're with that person. And he went with Paul on that first trip. There was someone else with them, though. It was a man, a cousin of Barnabas, actually, this man named Mark. I don't know how old he was. It always, I always think he's young, and he, he probably was, I, I guess. And of course, it's understandable that, that Barnabas would feel a certain connection to this guy, Mark, his cousin, right? But Mark did something. John Mark did something, and it was right at the beginning of that journey. Right when they went to one of the, one of the first stops, he says, uh, I'm out. See you guys. I, I, I need to go. And we don't know the reason why he left, but evidently it gave Paul a lot of reason to be concerned. Look at verse 38. So Barnabas says, let's take John with us. And Paul says, Paul thought it best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And look what happened next. There arose a sharp disagreement. Ooh, can this happen in the church? I don't think so. There was a sharp disagreement here. Well, they resolved it and they figured it out and they went on with it. No. There arose a sharp disagreement. So they separated from each other. This is something's not right. I don't even know if we can listen to Paul's writings anymore because this should not happen, right? Let me talk about that. It says, they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him, sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And they went through Syria and uh, Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, of course, of course, like we said, Barnabas is thinking, I'm, a, I'm an encourager. I, I'm just doing what I do. I encourage this man. Yeah, bring him along. We can forgive this guy, right? I mean, aren't we going around and aren't we proclaiming the good news to people? Isn't the good news the good news that the gospel of forgiveness, right? So we're telling people on the road that your sins are forgiven if you trust in Jesus Christ. He took them to the cross and there he paid for every wrong thing you ever did. We're telling them that, right? Shouldn't we forgive Mark too? That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I get that. Oh, I get that. Barnabas, yeah, let's take him along. Let's forgive him. Let's give him a second chance. But you know, in the same time, in Paul's defense, you got to recognize that forgiveness doesn't always mean forgetting. Wait, wait, wait. Forgive and forget. I, that, those always go hand in hand, right? No, not necessarily. Not necessarily. It doesn't always mean moving forward as if nothing happened. It can't sometimes. Forgiveness means releasing your offender from the obligation to pay back the debt that they owe you, right? I forgive you. You don't have to pay this back. I'm not holding you to this anymore. I forgive you. You owe me a lot. You've wrecked my life. You don't have to pay that back. I'm releasing you of it. I forgive you of it. No obligation left. But you know what it doesn't mean? It doesn't mean foolishly putting yourself right back in a position where they can do the same harm. Someone's been physically 
sexually abusive. Imagine. They don't get to step right back in, into the same environment where they hurt someone before. Absolutely not. No way. Trust has been broken. Yes, we might forgive them. Yes, we might say, you know what? You don't owe me anything. Christ's blood has covered over that. It's done. It's gone away. But it's not. I can't. It's, I would be a fool to forget that because trust has been broken. And it's going to take a lot to restore that trust. Maybe it will never be completely restored. Because I don't know what kind of flesh stuff is inside of you bubbling up. Well, I kind of do know what kind of flesh stuff is bubbling up inside of you. I don't think Paul is wrong here in his insistence that Mark should not come along on trip number two. I don't think he's wrong at all. I think, in fact, he's validated when the church says, you know what, we're going to commend you and Silas. We're praying for you. We're sending you off. I think they're saying, yep, Paul, this is good. You're right. Go. Verse 40 supports that. At the same time, I wouldn't fault Barnabas one bit for feeling the way he does. But you know what? It doesn't remove the fact that this disagreement was not resolved. Not resolved. They can't come to an agreement here. In fact, in verse 39, it says there was a sharp disagreement. This thing is heated. This is emotionally charged. There is a lot connected to this. And part of that is because they're both so passionate about the work of Christ. Here, Barnabas is so passionate about this idea of forgiveness. The gospel is for these people. They need this, and we need to extend it to them. And at the same time, Paul's going, you know what? We, the people... Us, the ministers, we are called for the gospel. We need to get that gospel out, and this guy is going to hurt our efforts here. What should they have done? What, what do you do? Should they have stayed there and belted it out? I don't know if you've, you've, we were in a family. Maybe there was something you did wrong in the family, and your parents said, you know what? Get, in, get, get to the kitchen table. We're staying up as long as it takes until this thing is resolved. The sun is not, well, the sun may go down, but we're not going down until this is resolved. Should they have just kept going and going and going until they figured it out? Should they have just let frustration get the better of them, sour them? They're just so, so hurt like that family I was talking to. They said, I'm fed up with God's people. I'm going to disconnect with God's people. I'm not going to love them the way God wants me to love them because I just can't. I've been so seared by them. And how many people say, you know what? I'm done with the church. I'm never going back because they have seen fault. They've been faulted, wronged by someone in the church and they just can't forgive. Could, should they have just burned out here? could easily see how either of those two things could have happened. I think we need to ask ourselves a question here. Do disagreements mean that we don't care for each other? Did Paul and Barnabas, did their disagreement mean that they weren't doing what Jesus had called them to do? Were they not loving each other the way they were supposed to? And I think the answer is absolutely not. It's absolutely not. You know, our society is trying to promote this idea that if you disagree with someone, then you are not for that person. You don't love them. You disagree with them. How could you love them? You disagree with them unless you affirm them in every possible way, unless they affirm you in every possible way, you know who they are? They're your enemy. This is your enemy. You watch out for those people. You disassociate yourself from those people. You go get 
those people. And I want to go on record as saying that is a lie. It's a lie. You know, we know that even though there was tension between Barnabas and Paul in this moment, even though they didn't go on that next mission trip together, their regard for each other was unchanged. There may have been some feelings that were, that were heated in the moment, but they still cared for each other. 1 Corinthians 9, 6 tells us Paul in no way considered Barnabas his enemy, but by no means. On the contrary, he's a fellow worker. He's a fellow soldier of the same king that I serve here. What's more, Paul's relationship with John Mark, even though he's saying, now this guy can't come, doesn't mean he's not loving that brother. Later on, Paul, Paul in multiple places expresses, Mark's, Mark's useful to me. He, he, he's a brother in the Lord. This is, this, is, this is a fellow disciple here. So even in the moments of sharp disagreement, disciples of Jesus can still love each other. I was in a disagreement with someone this morning, and they, they, they pushed back on me, and then I pushed back on them, and I thought, ooh, this is getting heated. Actually, no, my heart's beating really fast. I'm getting sweaty. I'm getting emotional. I'm just like, mm. I still love them, and they still love me, and we made sure, or we're, we're, we're not sure we're clear on this, but we're good, right? We're good. Because disciples of Jesus, they can still love each other even when they're disagreeing with each other. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that there are not, there's nothing that we can disagree on that's going to really cause a rift here. There's some things that we, we, we disagree on that, that are pivotal, that are foundational. And it may mean, you know, we just say, I, I don't, brother, I don't know if you're even a brother. I don't know if you're even saved here. Because I'm saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And you're saying, well, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I trust in the good things I do and God will be fine with that. No, clearly, the disagreement there, it has drastic repercussions. They're not both saved, not according to Scripture. The other thing I would want to point out to you is that the way you communicate in your disagreements matters tremendously. The Bible has a thing or two to say about that. We won't go into it now. But right now, I want to ask the question, are their fellow believers with whom you disagree? <laughs> I know the answer is yes. I kind of know that about you, because I know that about me. Are there fellow believers that you disagree with that you've been tempted to consider to be your enemies? Let me encourage you to check your heart and take that to the Lord in prayer. And maybe even go before them, call them up and say, hey, can we get together? Because I got some things I could confess to you. I, I know we still disagree on this, and, and that's not, I can't fix that, but I, I have some heart things here that I need to deal with. But the main thing I want to lead us to talk about here, and I want us to see, is that in this heated moment of tension, neither Paul and neither Barnabas are distracted or deterred from doing the work that God had called them to do. Did you see that? They're not deterred. And that's because before and above anyone or anything else, disciples and disciple makers are loyal first to their king. This is so important. Disciple making is about loyalty to Jesus first. 
Jesus said in Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And before you jump to the idea that Jesus is some type of relationship-hating psychopath, we need to understand what Jesus is talking about here is being all in when it comes to your love for and your regard for and your loyalty to God. In fact, he's making it clear that unless your devotion to him is so distinct and and so far beyond your commitment to anyone else, even the most intimate of relationships, even the way you love yourself, if it's not beyond that, you're not doing it right. You know, it's not God, family, country next to each other. It's God and Through the floor, down below, somewhere down there is family and country and all the other loves that we are to have. That's what Jesus is trying to get across here. The loyalty that you and I have to God far surpasses. That's why he says you got to hate your father. And your, 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 your regard for your father, it would be considered hateful compared to your devotion and your love to your heavenly father. Don't hate your father, by the way even those who've hurt you. Disciple-making is about loyalty to Jesus first. This is why the argument between Paul and Barnabas doesn't sideline that mission. No. They, they, they might not be right with each other completely. They might not be on the same page, but you know what? They're going out. They're not even going the same direction. They're going two different directions. They're taking different people with them, but they are going out. And isn't it so interesting how God, even through the difficult, tense gut-wrenching moments of life is, is working out his purposes. You know what? I got two missions teams now. Boom, there they go. Separate directions. You know what? I just brought more people into active missions here. Silas is there. We're going to see Timothy is going to be there. We're going to see Luke comes in somewhere in the picture here. We're going to get a whiff of that as well. And they're going to fulfill the commission that Jesus had given them. Go make disciples. That's what loyalty to Jesus looks like. The passion that we have for our king and the mission to which he's called us, it must burn brighter than our dreams. It must be hotter than our most passionate desires and must not be contained or curtailed by even our closest or thickest of ties. Well, wait, we're supposed to love each other. They'll know we're disciples because of our... Absolutely! Absolutely! You know who you need to love more? You know who you need to be loyalty to, loyal to more? Moving on, Acts 16. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, a disciple there named Timothy, a son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him, circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Okay, nothing unusual here. Moving on. (laughs) Is Paul insane? (laughs) That just, okay, you're coming with me? Okay, let me me cut a body part off here. Here we go. All right. we We got that over with. Let's move on. If you know anything about the Jewish, Jewish history, Jewish people, you know that circumcision was a divinely prescribed physical sign that the Jews were God's chosen people. And someone says, but wait a second here. 
just last Sunday, Paul Schlieff was up here, and he was telling us that the Jerusalem Church Council decided that the Gentiles don't have to do all these things to be part of God's chosen people. Now that they have Jesus, they just trust in Jesus, they surrender to him, that's what it's all about. They don't need to go get circumcised. Paul's caving here. What is this guy can't make up his mind? What a weak-minded... I could go on on. That's not what's going on here at all. This isn't about Timothy becoming a Christian. Timothy was already a believer. On Paul's first missionary journey, we presume he came to Christ. Nothing to do with his salvation. At the same time, it has everything to do, everything to do with Timothy's ability to travel with Paul and to be maximally, I can't say maximally, maximally today. I don't know why. Maximally effective in preaching the good news, not only to the Gentiles, but also to the Jews. Think about this for a second. What would have happened if Paul brought Timothy, whose mother was a Jew, remember? His father was a Greek, though. What would have happened if Paul brings Timothy? We're going first to the synagogues. I pointed that out a couple weeks ago. In the synagogue, and the conversation goes, who's this guy? You know his father was a Greek, right? And uh, you know he's not circumcised, and Paul says, how do you know that? I don't know. He's not circumcised. This is a problem. He shouldn't be here. And that becomes the conversation. Wait a second. This was, wasn't this supposed to be all about the gospel? Wasn't this supposed to be all about the message of forgiveness? I was here to come to tell you that the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. And now we are in this whole circumcision conversation. And now we've lost completely the message that we were supposed to bring. What's Paul doing here? Paul is being consistent with what he knows disciples disciple makers are to do and that is in their loyalty to their king if that's gonna if that's gonna remain and if their mission is gonna go forward getting the good news out we got to do that in a clear way then they need to do everything they possibly can to make sure that that pathway for the gospel to go out is clear and undeterred in other words they should do anything they should do everything that they can to eliminate the roadblocks the boulders that are there remove the distractions annihilate any unnecessary offenses so that the news of jesus might go sailing on through and be powerfully understood and received well wait a second even if that means uh, uh personal sacrifice on on the part of the messenger yeah yeah even if that means cost to the messenger. In this case, a rather high and painful cost. And that brings us to point number three. And the the third point is disciple-making requires losing your life for the kingdom of God. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What does that deny yourself mean? Well, I know what it could mean. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. At the cross, Jesus made the greatest sacrifice so that you and I might repent of our sins, be brought to him, and have all of them washed clean, taken away. This is incredible. You know, so many people are out there, and they, are, they have guilt on their shoulders. They've made decisions, life-altering decisions. I mean, with the sexual revolution we see going on right now, we see people making life-altering decisions. And I was just listening this morning to people who are looking back on the decisions they made, and they are just 
overwhelmed with guilt and shame and confusion, and they are so struggling. They need to know Jesus. They need to know the gospel of Jesus Christ and that there is hope and forgiveness and guilt removal for them, even with the choices that they have made. And you dads who have made decisions, maybe you've been unfaithful to your wives and your children. Stop that if you're still doing it. But you need to know the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and how absolutely powerful that is. They need to know that. They need to know that more than anything else. Jesus came and made the greatest sacrifice so that we might know that truth. But you know what? Those Christians who are called to take this message of the gospel forth, they're also called to make sacrifices as well. That's exactly what we see going on here in Acts 15. Paul would later point out this whole concept in his own, word, in, or own words in 1 Corinthians 9.19. He says, though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. You see his motivation there? To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. He really wants to get the point across what he's all about. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not, my, not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, of course, that I might win those outside the law. Paul, we're starting to get it here. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means... I might save some. Notice he says, save some. He's not going to win all, but he's becoming all. He's not going to expect him to win all. I just want to save some, but I'll do whatever it takes to save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. And someone says, that doesn't sound very authentic. You see you Christians right there and this apostle Paul, this is not genuine. So he's going to pretend to be like all these other people so that he can trick them into listening to him. This doesn't sound very good at all. Well, that's not what's going on here. Paul is not about, at all talking about pretending, is he? There is nothing disingenuous about this. He is saying, that whosoever company you find yourself in, that he finds himself in, he's going to put his own preferences and his own rights, even as a Christian, aside so that he might show respect to their culture or their situation so that they will not see Paul, but they'll see Jesus because that's what it's all about. Do, Do you see that? Do you see how absolutely countercultural that is to our culture today? The spirit of our generation, it says, you know what, at all, at all costs, all costs, you be you. You be you. That's what all those Disney films that I grew up on were saying. Maybe not in so many words. Don't let anyone else influence you. Don't let them change you. You know what, not even your dad. You go out there, you talk to that sea witch. Do whatever it takes. <laughs> I think that was uh, Beauty and the Beast. Okay. Embrace who you are. Love who you are. You know what? Force everyone around you to affirm you. They absolutely should. If that means sacrificing your closest relationships, this might hit home. Then so be it. And if that means seeing your parents 
or your grandparents or the people who have invested in you and given to you and supported you all these years, if that means seeing them as your enemies, so be it. And you know what? You're better off without them. Do you see how utterly life-crushing and relationship-destroying that mentality is? On the other hand, here's Jesus. And he's saying, you want to follow me? Oh, do you? (laughs) Step one is to deny yourself. Well, how is that being true to myself? You're not supposed to be true to yourself. Do you know who you are? Who you are now? I can tell you who you were, who I created you to be. You're, you're an image bearer of God. And now you want to be true to yourself and go your own way. No, that's not how it works. So you need to deny that old rebellious self, the self that, that's inside, that's speaking to you, because that's fallen. What's inside of you, it's telling you all the stuff. It's saying, you be you. It's saying, you, 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 what you want is saying, stand up for your rights. It's saying, those, all those other people are out to get you. That's lying to you. You don't listen to that. Listen to your heavenly father and you deny yourself. Lose your life. The life that you were pursuing. The life that you were hell-bent on doing all that you could to build up and protect. You lose that. You lose it now. And you'll discover what real living truly is. That's what disciples do. It's what they do. And when it comes to disciple makers as well, you know how this, what this looks like? It looks like losing yourself. Timothy, it looks like losing, you don't want to do this. I understand you don't want to do this. I, don't, I wouldn't want to do this either, not at your age. It means denying yourself so that other people might see Jesus. Because that is more important than anything. Paul and Timothy, they walked down that road. And here's what resulted. Now, I don't think this is going to come up on the screens. I think I missed this slide. But verse 4 says, as they went on their way through the cities, They delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. That's what we talked about last week with Paul. So the churches were strengthened in the faith. These brand new churches strengthened in the faith. And know what? They increased in numbers daily. Boy, removing that obstacle was so worth it. Disciple making. You know what? It's about disciple caring. It's about loyalty to Jesus first. It's also about losing your life for the kingdom of God. Finally, disciple-making requires denying yourself. We kind of talked about that, but in pursuit of Christ's lead, his lead. Yeah, I'm saying no to self, but I'm also saying yes to whatever he says to me. And there's an example of this. Look here in verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. That's weird. And when they came up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. That's a region to the north there. Sorry, I don't have a map for you. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing over there. That's across the Aegean Sea. Standing over there, urging them, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we, who's the we? All of a sudden the author is in here. Luke is with them. Where did he come from? I don't know where he got picked up, but he's here now. We sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God has called us to preach the gospel to them. 
Now, Paul, he seemed to have a plan, didn't he? He seemed to have a direction. He hadn't been given any type of phone with GPS or an itinerary that says, you're going to go here, you're going to go here, you're going to go here. He just goes. He goes. But he seems to have an idea of where he wants to go. But Jesus said, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, come after me, cannot be my disciple. You know, taking up the cross, it means identifying with Jesus. Absolutely. And what he came to accomplish. It requires walking with him. It requires partnering with him in the saving work that he was all about. Even at the expense of personal comfort? Yes, even at the expense of personal comfort, even at the expense of personal well-being. I have a mission for you. You're a soldier. You will go out there. It involves immediately going and making those disciples personally and intentionally and seeking to answer that call. And Paul does that. I'm going to deny myself. I'm going into places where I got hurt before. I'm going back there. But he was wishing to to not only build up the body of believers, but to make more and to step into new territory as well. I want to move into new territory here. God, I want to go here. No, you're not going there. Explanation, please. None given. We don't know exactly why the Spirit directs Paul where he does, but we do know that calling him over to Macedonia, this is going to be the first time the gospel enters into European territory. I think that's significant. Are you and I flexible enough to follow Christ's lead, to actually come after him and to follow him where he leads us? We know that we're called to bear the cross. We know that we've got to recognize that that means, Jesus, where do you want me to go? I got to listen to you. I got to follow you wherever you tell me to go. In Paul's day, the full revelation of, of God's word wasn't, wasn't revealed. In fact, God was going to reveal more of it through Paul as he would write these epistles to the churches. And so God speaks to him in visions. You know, in our day, though, we have the full revelation of God's word. It tells us it's the full re- revelation at the end. This is our guide. Do we know it? Are we listening to it? Are we obedient to what it calls us to do? Yeah, it may not tell us every detail, It doesn't tell us what I'm going to have for lunch this afternoon, even though I think I have an idea. Or what decision you need to make tomorrow about your job or your relationship or whatever, but it does give us what we need to do to obey. And so we need to pay attention to that. And you know that's actually another characteristic of being one of Christ's disciples because Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. And you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. So here on the second trip, they're going out. They're going to build up God's people, add more to the number. And Paul shows us through his life some examples of what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. It looks like caring for the people that Jesus cares for. It looks like loyalty to Jesus first. Yeah, we're having trouble here. I've got some disagreements, even with some brother. This is hard. I'm going to be loyal to to you, Lord, and do what you want me to do. It looks like losing yourself for the sake of the kingdom. Timothy, will you come with me? We have to take care of something. And it looks like denying yourself to pursue God's lead. As we saturate ourselves with God's word, he is shaping us to ever closer be in the image of Jesus Christ, that we might look less like our fallen selves and more like the one who saved us. Amen?
This is what it looks like, a little bit of what it looks like to be one of Christ's disciples. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. I thank you for how relevant this is to our current situation in our day. And I also want to recognize, Lord, that some in this room are, as they're reminded of the effects of sin that have impacted them so closely for some in their very families, especially on today when we, talk, when we celebrate fathers. We feel that brokenness, Lord. And Lord, I pray for them this morning that you would comfort them. Lord, they are tripped up in so many ways by the hurt that they, they know and feel and carry with them and are reminded of on a day-to-day basis. Lord, comfort their hearts and be their strength. Remind them of your love and forgiveness, especially those who can point back to some decision that they made that they think contributes to whatever problem they've got. Comfort them, Lord. May they run to the arms of Jesus. May they experience the love that he has to offer them, that he made possible for them to experience with his life. And Father, may they know the gospel truly for themselves. And Lord, lead them forth to be messengers, carriers, torchbearers of the gospel, even as they meet with family today. For the rest of us, Lord, we, we want to be your disciples. We want, we want to know what this, it means to do this. And, and, and Lord, we are struggling with love for each other, some of us. Help us in that regard. Help us to forgive one another. For some, Lord, we're, we're still all about our, our, our own agendas and our own comfort, and we're so unwilling to let that go, to be about your business. Help us to let go of that and to be about our Father's business. For others, Lord, we are just, Lord, we're wrestling with frustration, and that is tripping us up, and it's distracting us from the work you've called us to do, Lord. May we trust you with the things that we cannot solve in the moment, in this moment. May we continue on in obedience. And Lord, may we follow your lead. You, you have a way of, of letting doors close on us again and again. But Lord, may we continue to walk in obedience and not be discouraged and be ready and faithful to do the work that you allow us to do when you open the right doors. We love you and we thank you. I pray your blessing upon this small community that you've gathered here this morning. And pray these things in Jesus' name.